Good morning again, Redeemer. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn them to Psalm 122. Uh, it's a custom here to spend the summer in the Psalms here at Redeemer, and this summer we're going to be looking at a particular unit of the Psalms uh, that we call the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, Psalms of Ascent. Um, there are Psalms 120 through Psalm 134. And there are two different views out there. Some say that these psalms or songs were prayed as the people went into the temple. The great majority of scholars uh, think that these psalms and prayers, uh, hey, sweetie, these psalms and prayers were saying as uh, Israel made their way to Jerusalem. You might remember in Deuteronomy chapter 16, there were three appointed feasts, uh, Passover, the Feast of Booths, and the um, Feast of Weeks, where the Lord commands them, wherever they live in the land of promise, that those three feasts, they were to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. This is what we see in Psalm 122, verse 4, where David says, the tribes were to go up to Jerusalem as was decreed for Israel, as God commanded Israel. And so I want you to think about this map. Do you have it for me? There you go. Oh, you cannot see it. Okay, well, well, we'll scratch that. So I want you to envision the promised land, and the promised land is divided amongst the 12 tribes. The tribe of Levi did not get land. Their portion was the temple and the things of the Lord. But if you were at the southernmost tip, which was Judah, or the northernmost tip of the land, which was East Manasseh, you're talking about 300 miles of travel. And so you could venture with me that, that it's likely that, that those people never really got a chance to see one another, and yet the Lord, in his kindness, he synced their calendar. And so three times a year, wherever you were in the promised land, you had to make your way to Jerusalem. And they're always, it's considered going upward because Jerusalem was the highest uh, point in the land, and that's why you see Psalms of Ascent. They are ascending Wherever you're traveling from in the land of promise, you're going to get to Jerusalem, and you, start, you have to start walking up mountains. And so, that's why they're called the Psalm of Ascents. But think about this, that God gave them the land, and yet, they were to always keep their eyes on Jerusalem. That they had their homes, they had their lands, but three times a year, they had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I think that city was pointing them to the new Jerusalem. And it's as if God was saying, I know you're in your land, you're in your homes, but you have a true city whose builder and maker is God. And three times a year, you're going to come here, and I'm going to make you remember that. Psalm 122. A song of ascent of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of Israel, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. May peace be within your walls and security within your towers. 
For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, we turn our hearts to your word and we thank you for it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your word is manna, it is nourishment for our souls, O Lord. It is sweeter than a honeycomb, that when our souls are parched, refreshing of the Lord comes from thine word. And so would you be pleased, Lord, to use your servant to build up your people for your glory, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. When you hear the word pilgrim, what comes to mind? My guess is that you probably think about the, uh, those, the pilgrims who traveled from England who set sail to America in the 1600s. When you hear the word immigrant, uh, what comes to mind? Maybe our Latino brothers and sisters who are coming into our country. When you hear the word migrant, what comes to mind? Perhaps it's uh, the great migration that Elizabeth Wilkerson writes about in her book entitled Warmth of the Other Sons, where she writes about the six million African Americans who left the South over six decades for land and opportunity in the North. Call it what you may, pilgrims, sojourners, migrants, exiles, That's what the Bible kind of characterizes Christians. Listen to what the author of the New Testament writes and the author of Hebrews. These all died in faith, not receiving the things promised, having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. First Peter says, beloved, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The author of Hebrews goes on to say that he was looking for a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He also goes on to say, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Think about that. We might define ourselves as Mississippians. We might define ourselves as Americans. But the Bible is going to push us a little bit. It's going to say that if we name the name of Christ, we can't get too comfortable here. That in one sense, we're exiles and we're strangers and we're sojourners. Much like the people that I've just referenced, that our hearts are set on a new city with a new king, with a new way of living. And what God wants us to think about is how does that shape our here and now as we think about our identities here and now? We can't stay here. We're going to die. And the question begins, where are we going? Where are we going? Are you on the pilgrimage to the home that God is preparing right now? Or are you on a pilgrimage apart from his presence forevermore? We're all journeying somewhere. And the question is, where are you going? Now, what I want to do with this passage is sort of unpack some of the marks 
of a pilgrim. It's undebatable that the Bible calls us pilgrims and exiles and strangers on our way to home to be with him. The question that I'm asking of the text is, how do we know we're on that pilgrimage? What are some marks of a pilgrim? The first thing I think we see in our passage is the dissatisfaction of a pilgrim. The dissatisfaction of the pilgrim. Look how our psalm opens up. David says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, we don't know who they are, right? This could be David's children. It could be his wife and his children kind of waking him up because one of the feasts have come and he's about to make this procession to the city. It could be a ser- servants of David. Uh, it could be that David is on the battlefield. And I want you to think about th- this Old Testament calendar. It could be that David is out fighting, right? We, we know in 2 Samuel 5, 6 that David captures Jerusalem and David rebuilds it. But we think that's around 997 B.C., But if you know the life of David, then you know that for the next 30 years, David just doesn't put his stake in Jerusalem and build it, and then it's over. He's a man of war. And so he's always having to go out and and, and fight and to war, so much so that when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 21, he's almost killed. And his, his men says, all right, David, you're getting a little slow with the weapon. Why don't you put the weapon down and you go back and be king and you let us fight? So for 30 years of David's life, he's fighting. And so then then look at the passage. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. It could be that these are soldiers who are coming to him and saying, David, it's time. Passover is here. It's time. Let us put our weapons down. It's time. Let's go to the holy city of Jerusalem. It's time. Now, what, how did David respond when he heard those words? He says, I was glad. Don't lose sight of this. This is David, King David, who was living in a house of cedar, David, while God's house was still in a tabernacle, David. His home would have surely been on Yo! MTV Cribs if we still had that show. David's house would have been on there. This is David who had songs written about him. He slayed his 10,000. This is David, the most popular poet in Israel. This is David, the most famed king in Israel. This is David who was more powerful and more skilled in war than any other man. And yet what causes him gladness in this passage is not his house and it's not his accomplishments. What causes him gladness is to go to the house of the Lord. The accomplishments of the Lord makes everything he's accomplished pale in comparison so that he is glad. He is glad to go and be with God. This reminds us, right, that pilgrims, in one sense, we will be dissatisfied even with the good things we have in life. That there are things that a wife or a spouse or a child or a job or income, there are places in the deep crevices of our hearts that no one can satisfy other than God. And so in that sense, a true pilgrim headed home to be with God 
we feel this sense of dissatisfaction, even with the good things that we have in life. We're also dissatisfied with our own righteousness. As much as we prop David up, he's a flawed man. He's emotionally unstable. Have you read the Psalms? That one day he's in the heights, and the next day he's in the pits. He's spending his life running from people who want to take his life. He's killed people. I mean, with his own hands, with his own sword, he has watched life expire out of a person. And then he even committed adultery and killed his own friend. Do you know how unstable this might make a person? Am I covered? Am I pardoned? Am I innocent in the sight of the Lord? Lord, look at all of these bodies I have lodged against me. Look at my sin. Look at my depravity. Do you look at me with kindness? And it could be that he wants to go to the temple because he gets to to, to come in the presence of a Levite who's going to make atonement for his sin, who's going to assure David, I will put my hands on you and I will take away your guilt and I will slay this animal and put your guilt on this animal and you are pardoned in the sight of the Lord. It could be that David is glad because of that. He gets to go and have the promises of God realized and applied to him. True pilgrims will be dissatisfied with this world. When all is good, have you ever felt that gnawing sense? There has to be more. And when you've sinned and you've messed up, You have that gnawing sense of, does God still desire me? Don't ignore the inner workings of that dissatisfaction. Don't ignore those longings that I think they're doing something. God is using this to do something. And this is why I love the quote that that I have in our bulletin. C.S. Lewis writes, I think he captures this beautifully. He says, most people, if they really learn to look into their hearts, would know that they acutely want some things that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this, that this world offers to give to you, but none of them truly keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world, either good or bad, can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse this, to suggest that there is a real thing out there. If this is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to, to despise or never, never to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. On the other hand, I must never mistaking, mistaken them for something else which they are only a kind of copy or an echo or an image. I must keep alive in myself my desire for my true country, which I shall not find until my death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it my main object in life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. You hear that? 
for those on their way home to be with God, you've done the surveys after you've bought something, and you're like, man, how did y'all get my number? How did you get my number to call me to give, me, give you a survey about this piece of something I just bought, right? Or you get an email, and they're always wanting you and I to tell us about your service, tell us about your experience. Here it is for the Christian. If you were to be really, really honest about life, and I told you to rate it, 10 being it's perfect and zero being it's lousy, the true pilgrim will never say that this life is perfect. Nothing here is perfect. We're always dissatisfied with this place. See, that's the start of a pilgrim. When you realize that there is something better, someone better. The next thing I want to look at in this passage are some important longings of a pilgrim. Important longings. The first one is connection to God's people. You'll notice in verse 4, listen to what David says. He's speaking about Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. That phrase, bound firmly together, it could be compact, describing the architecture, or it could be used uh, compact in the sense of we're unified. And so you got to kind of have to make a choice there. Is he's talking about the architecture of Jerusalem Or is he talking about the unity and the closeness and the proximity of the people who go to Jerusalem? Now, notice this language of the tribes. Jerusalem built as a city bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. David was of the tribe of Judah. But he longed to see the tribes of Benjamin and Naphtali and Gad and Levi and Reuben. That that, that if you look at the passage, there's this eagerness to be around the tribes in the plural. And you got to think about the geography of the land and the cultures. They were not a homogenous people. For example, we know that two tribes, Gad and Reuben from Numbers 32, they were herders. They actually asked Moses, hey, can we stay on this side of the river? And Moses said, look, you can't do that. You can't stay apart from the other 10 tribes. And he says, but he says, let us stay here for this land is perfect land for raising our cattle. And, And Moses says, look, you can stay if you promise to cross over and to go to war. And you can, you can build your cities over there and go to war with us. And when the other 10 tribes have their land, then you can go back and you can raise your cow, your cows, right? Some lived in the mountains. Some lived near seas. Some, I mean, just there's diversity within the tribes of Israel. Some were skilled at war. Some handled the priestly things. And here's what God does in his beauty. You're going to be living 300 miles apart, some of you. 
And you're going to have different ways of lives. And you're going to do different things for the way you live. You're going you're, you're to be different. But I'm going to sync your calendar. Three times a year, wherever you lived in the promised land, y'all came home. And it's a big family reunion. Haven't you felt that? We've been apart for three months. Was there something inside of you that missed this place? And I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the people. We're different. But our lives are bound together in the gospel. David says, I long, the the tribes, I want to see them. A mark of those of us who are on our pilgrimage to be with God is that we want to be with God's people. If you don't want to be with God's people now, you will be miserable in heaven. Because those are going to be the only people there. So do not make the mistake to think that you can long for heaven and not love the people that you will be spending eternity with and their glorified selves. David is longing to be with the people of God. The second thing we see that, that that's an important longing for a pilgrim is this sense of biblical justice. You see it right there in verse 5 where there's this allusion to the thrones of judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David, that Jerusalem was not just the religious center for the people of God, but, but, but uh, Van Gimmeren says that, that, that it was also the political center for the people of God, that the kings of Judah ruled by divine right. They upheld God's kingship to the extent that they were faithful in dispensing justice. One example of this is Solomon. You've read it in the Old Testament where these two women, they're having a dispute over a baby. That two of these nursing moms have a baby, and one, one mom rolls over on her baby, and she kills her baby in her sleep. And so what she does is she gets up in the middle of the night, and she switches babies out. She takes her dead baby and gives it to the woman who has the living baby, and then she takes the living baby and puts it in her bed, and the woman whose son was alive, who has been taken, she goes to who? She goes to Solomon, the king. And she, she says, settle this dispute for us. That's my baby. I know it's my baby. But that woman switched it. And what does Solomon do? Solomon says, hand me a sword. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut this baby in half. You take half and you take half. And y'all go and keep it moving. And what does the mother, the true mother of the child do? She says, no. She can have it. She can have him. I would rather him be alive with her than to be dead. And you know what Solomon does? He said, now I know who the true mother is. It's you. And do you want to know what the people of God said when they saw Solomon do this? 
all of Israel heard of the judgment that the king rendered, they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Those of us on our way home to be with God, justice matters. Equity and scales, it matters. Treatment of fairness, it matters. Because we're made in the image of a God who is just. And so when David makes reference to this justice that that happens in Jerusalem, I think he's telling us we should not be okay with injustice. Another mark of a longing of a pilgrim is this sense and this desire for peace. And you see that three times. He's going to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He's commending us to do it. Peace be within your walls. Verse 7, verse 8, for my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. In other words, the person who was on their way home to be with God, we not at home with drama. We want wholeness, shalom, this sense that we're right with the Lord, and that's bubbling over, and we're pursuing rightness and peace with one another. If this was written during a time of war, Imagine what it would feel like to lay your weapons down, to not have to look over your shoulders to see if you're about to be ambushed, to not have to wake up every moment and wonder if this will be your last day, where you lay weapons down and you get to walk into the city of God with no threat, and you get to be with a priest who pardons and covers iniquity, that there is a wholeness that David desires. Security, this longing for security. Right there in verse 7, security be within your towers. That word for security, it can be translated free to be prosperous and tranquil. This is the result of peace, that where there is true shalom, we can then thrive without outside threat or inner guilt. Eugene Peterson says, prosperity to all you Jerusalem lovers, friendly insiders get along, hostile outsiders, you better keep your distance. That's the way he translates that verse. I love it. It's a mark where we long for security. But it's moving us, right? That true pilgrims, we long for worship of God himself. Now you'll see that right there in verse 4. To which the tribes go up, speaking of the city, the tribes of the, the, tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. That's a mark of a pilgrim. 
that we come here to posture our hearts to sing praise and honor and majesty and might to our king. And here's the assumption, right? That if God says, give thanks to me, what does that presuppose? It presupposes that he has, is, and will always do things that are worthy of thanks and praise. In other words, he's not just asking for blanket praise me, praise me, praise me, thank me, thank me, thank me, worship me. It's a response because I'm worthy, because I have done something, because I am doing something, because I will always be working all things out for your good and my glory. That's the underlying assumption. Whose design was it to make Israel a nation of 12 tribes out of the family of one man? It was God's. Who is it that truly executes justice? It's God. You remember those three feasts that they were commanded to come to Israel to celebrate? Passover, the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Weeks. And these are three important feasts. Let me tell you why. What's happening in Passover? Is that not when God showed you what real justice is? They enslaved y'all and made y'all work the land. I'm going to plunder their land. They enslaved y'all and threw y'all babies in the Nile. Guess what? When I take you out of Egypt, I'm taking all their firstborn sons back. That's justice. That's God himself executing justice upon Egypt for the way that they treated Israel. But here's the thing. God carried out justice also within Israel. They weren't holier than thou. And on the night of the Passover, the Israelites had to, 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 to offer a sacrifice. They had to put the blood of a lamb on top of their doorpost. And you know why they had to do it? Because them jokers was trifling as well. And God says, I'm going to pass over you by accounting your sin to this animal and I will bring you out. In that sense, is not God executing justice? I will either execute justice on your head or I will execute justice on the head of a sacrifice. But either way it go, no matter how you try to skin this cat, God is a God of justice. So every time they celebrated Passover, it was a reminder. He is just, yes. I heard you, little buddy. What about the Feast of Weeks? What's that about? That's the feast at the end of the spring harvest. That's when you planted everything in the fall. And when the spring came, you had crops. And the first thing you were to do when you harvested your crops was to go to the temple. And you want to know the connection that God is making? I'm not just the God of your soul and your salvation. I'm the God who gives you everything. Those fields that you're harvesting from, they're my fields. That food you have, that's my food. 
the clothes on your back, those are my clothes. In other words, every time they came to the temple to celebrate that feast, it was a reminder that you have not gone without, that I have provided for you over and over and over and over again. And what about the Feast of Booths? It's a pointer to the years they spent wandering, and their clothes did not wear out. He was their shade in the day. He was their light in the night. He gave them manna from heaven, water from a rock. He gave them quail. In other words, God is also saying, when you wander and you're not quite home yet, it's me who's protecting you in your wandering. You see how this works? They were coming to the temple to give thanks, but their thanks was specific around certain things that God was doing. Now, here's the question. How is this related to us? Because we're not in Israel. We're in Jackson, Mississippi. You know, these things culminate in Christ. You see, the Feast of Booths, to remind Israel where they tabernacled, the Bible says someone came and he tabernacled among the earth, that he left the right hand of the Father and he went on a journey. He took on flesh and became like you, weak and frail. He was clothed in immortality, immortality and divinity and light, but he put this shell around himself and became fully God and truly man, and he tabernacled on the earth, and he did what? To become a greater Passover than the one instituted in Moses' day. You see, we had a greater master over us who was greater than Pharaoh. We were enslaved to our sin. We were by nature children of wrath. But God being rich in mercy for the love with which he loved us, he made us alive in Christ. He called us not out of Egypt, but out of the darkness of our souls and out of our sin and out of the prison of the flesh. And he did this through the work of Jesus who became a Passover lamb for you and I. His blood was shed that we who are unrighteous might be made righteous and holy in God's sight. And the feast of weeks, do you want to know the equivalent to that in the New Testament? where we celebrate God's goodness to us through his earthly provision? Do you want to know the equivalent to it in the book of Acts? It's Pentecost. It's Pentecost. Where God says he's not just going to come and tabernacle among you. He's not just going to become the greater Passover sacrifice. He's going to pour out the spirit upon you and you will make it home Christian no matter the journey because the Holy Spirit indwells you 
you will make it home. Nothing can stop you from making it home. And God is your father. He cares about the lilies of the field and the birds of the heavens. And he's going to materially provide which one of us ain't eating right now. He's faithful. He's kind. And when it gets hard and when you lose your jobs, the church is a vehicle where we get the privilege of coming alongside those of us in our midst who face these crises to be generous and to show you the love and the faithfulness of God right here and right now. And the fruit of that, do we not love the body now? Do we not long to hear children praise his name? Do we not long to see senior citizens who journeyed longer than us still be on the course? Do we not long to be in the company of God's people where we hear their voices stirring our affections anew for the king? That is a fruit or the fruit of union with Christ is we love the body. And this sense of justice, yeah, our heart breaks with what we see in our world. But that's because we serve and love a God who is just. So where are you in those areas? Do you love worshiping and giving God honor and praise? Do you love the body? Do you long for justice that God himself will complete? Have you found rest and refuge in Jesus Christ alone? God says, you're on your way. You're on your way. Last point, and it'll be really quick. The eternal and eclipsing joy of the pilgrim. I'm aware that we don't always feel like we're headed home. That sometimes it feels like we're losing our way. And sometimes we, like David, we doubt that there is a city whose builder and maker is God. But the good news for the Christian, he who started this will complete it. But I want you to pay attention to what's in this song. These psalms are pilgrim songs, the songs and pray prayers that they prayed as they journeyed to Jerusalem. But did you pay attention to what's not in this song? There is no reference to the journey. Not one. You could look at other psalms where they're afraid or, I mean, there are enemies out there. But did you notice the opening line? I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You would expect right there in verse 2 that he's going to start talking about the journey from wherever he was to the house of the Lord. And then look at what happens in verse 2. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Wait a minute. Where's the journey? He doesn't write about it. Now, why is that important? I think what's happening here is the difficulty of the journey is being eclipsed 
by the destination. In other words, making it home was so beautiful that he omits the journey. You know, Jesus says something like this in John 16. Here's what he writes. He says, I'm about to be crucified, buried, and I will be raised, and I will ascend. And he tells the disciples, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And then he gives them an analogy. He says, as a woman who carries a child has sorrow during the child bearing and, and, and carrying the child, but when she gives birth, she does not remember the anguish because her child is there. And Jesus says, so it will be for you. This life might be sorrowful and this journey might be hard. But when you make it home, that joy will eclipse all of the pain and all of the anguish of the journey. Isn't that good news, believer? Life may feel hard, but the new Jerusalem is going to be so beautiful and so perfect and so worth it that whatever we endure in this life, it will make it all well, and it will be eclipsed by being home with him. We're going to sing Amazing Grace, and there's a line in Amazing Grace I want us to think on. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring me home. Let's pray. Father, we bless you, and we pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts. Father, I pray for those in our midst who might be here because a family member or a friend invited them. And frankly, Lord, they're satisfied with the world. They don't long for you. They don't long to be with your people. Father, I pray that today would be a day where you hold out the beauty of Jesus. May your spirit be behind them, pursuing them, showing them the fleeting nature of this world. May your spirit be cultivating in them life anew. Bring them, Lord, to life, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.